Welcome to the New Books Network. Robert P. George is the indispensable man of American social conservatism. The Princeton professor is a scholar of such intellectual power that he almost single-handedly rescued the anti-abortion movement for the fringes of the American socio-political and legal landscape in the 1990s, when the secular left assumed that the reign of abortion on demand for any reason was a done deal. George, born 1955, reset the debate and provided the intellectual framework that enabled a generation of pro-life advocates to craft tactics and policies that led ultimately to the Dobbs decision of 2022 that overturned Roe v. Wade. Conservatives are not often regarded as innovators, but George changed the paradigm. The book we will discuss today shows how he has done that. And that momentous accomplishment is only one milestone in the career of this multifaceted scholar. George is one of the few scholars to wield influence in multiple fields of study. A lover of the humanities and liberal learning, he has made major contributions in his primary fields of analytic philosophy and his sub-branch, the philosophy of law. He has also done important work both in academic writing and through public service in the form of membership and chairmanship of federal government bodies in such fields as bioethics, religious freedom, and civil rights. All of his accomplishments and more are discussed by leading Protestant scholars and thinkers in the 2023 book, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant Engagement with Robert P. George, edited by the evangelical scholar Andrew Walker. Walker contributes an introduction and an interview with George himself, both of which make clear why the latter is so admired in evangelical circles and what qualms some of them have about some aspects of his activism. Carl Truman, for example, suggests that as wokeness has corroded and coarsened public discourse, George's gentlemanly approach is no longer effective. By contrast, other of the chapter authors engage in some self-criticism and lament the fact that the evangelical community lacks a figure comparable to the Catholic George and cite his exhortations to Christians to face the fact that the days of comfortable Christianity are over and that they must gird themselves to stand for what he and Walker refer to, quoting T.S. Eliot, as the permanent things in the face of the onslaught of an openly and increasingly dominant anti-religious mindset in elite sectors such as academia, media, Hollywood, and popular culture. George's stand on traditional marriage is one example of his willingness to oppose the left's cultural and political power. As a leading public intellectual, a term interestingly George does not care for on the ground that that to him smacks of a hankering for celebrity status, George maintains an active speaking schedule in front of general audiences, often in partnership with his close friend, the progressive, and importantly for this book, in which his friendship, so important to George, is allotted the chapter, Baptist Cornell West. At his home base at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1985, George has molded cohorts of students in constitutional law and in jurisprudence generally. By founding in 2000, the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton, George has provided a model of a sphere within a university that provides a lively forum for the exchange of ideas across the political spectrum that benefits students, faculty, visiting scholars, and postdoctoral students from around the globe. There are now many centers and institutes modeled on the Madison program, both here in the U.S. and abroad. George has been the driving force of a movement academic academia to protect freedom of thought from encroachment from the left and the right. He is deeply committed to free speech and tirelessly makes the case for unfettered truth-seeking and truth-speaking in academia and in life outside it. One particularly notable aspect of George's career impact is that even though he is a cradle Catholic and a man squarely situated in the left-wing bastion of the Ivy League, he is widely admired in the Protestant evangelical community and recognized within it 
as a champion of the shared values of those two branches of Christianity. Most particularly, George is lauded for his witness as a scholar, activist, and as a man as to the value of every human life and the imperative need for all Christians and people of faith to protect our fellow human beings from the moment of conception to the last days of our lives when we may lose our cognitive abilities, as well as those who are intellectually or physically impaired at any stage of life. To be clear, George is a scholar first and stresses that he is a philosopher and not a theologian. Nevertheless, some of the chapter authors, in discussing his methods and his runnings on natural law, of which he is a giant, lament that George does not quote scripture enough. The tensions between George's insistence on the need for both faith and religion and the push of several of the authors for George to be more explicitly religious in his scholarly writings are on full display in the book to fascinating effect. Although the primary audience for the book is evangelical Protestants, it is must reading for those who are neither evangelicals or even Christians, but who care about American politics and morals. It is an exemplary fish drift, and one who finishes the book with a much greater understanding of the richness of evangelical intellectual life, and why so many evangelical scholars and activists admire and seek to emulate Robert P. George and hold him up as a model of excellence in academia and of skill as a networker and institution builder. The book is ideal for those interested in how ideas are developed and communicated by one of the most brilliant and beloved intellectual and moral leaders of our time. Many of the scholars in this book are making their own marks in moral philosophy and law and the other branches of scholarship that the formidably learned Robert P. George has shown can change things for the better for the most vulnerable among us. Courage has been the watchword of George's career, and the authors of the book provide example after example of how George has manifested it throughout his life. Not bad for a hillbilly, as George describes himself, a grandson of coal miners who was born and brought up in the hills of West Virginia. Let's hear from the editor of this study, Andrew Walker. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Andrew Walker, the editor of the 2023 book, Social, Conservatives, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant Engagement with Robert P. George. Thank you for joining us today, Andrew. Hey, Hope, thanks so much. I'm uh, glad for this opportunity to chat. Well, and as you can tell from my introduction, I just was fascinated by the book, and the word fascinating came <laughs> up quite a bit because it really was very interesting. I know of Robert P. George and admire him, but I, I didn't know about so much of his background, nor did I know about the evangelical uh, take on him and so many aspects of the book. And it's just, a, it's even aside, if you're not interested in Robert P. George, it's just a fascinating look at a scholar by other scholars. It's very, it's, it's really wonderful. Uh, I wonder, I'd like to start with the title of the book. You use the term Protestant rather than evangelical. And for those of us who are not evangelicals, could you explain what an evangelical is? And do all of the authors of the, all the contributors of the book identify as such? No, that's that's a, a really great question. Um, and one of, one of the dilemmas for um, why we ultimately didn't go with um, an evangelical engagement with, with, with Robert P. George is because the term evangelical uh, is it's a highly contested term. And I mean, there's a, a there's a genuine question right now, I think, in some circles of of whether or not evangelical should be a term that we continue to use. Uh, and I'll get into some of that perhaps if you'd like. But traditionally speaking, um, an evangelical has traditionally been defined as uh, a Protestant Christian, of what I would consider to be a more theologically conservative variety. Um, so in particular, 
Uh, an evangelical is someone who would attest to having what we would call a born-again experience, that they've had an awakening where they've had a decisive moment where they have uh, acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, and then from that center conviction, the anchor point of a life uh, oriented around Christ, there becomes uh, an emphasis on the Bible as the living and active Word of God, um, that it's not just uh, a collection of redacted documents, but that the Spirit of God is uh, in the text and that we are to be de dedicated to the, the biblical text as authoritative, inerrant, um, and sufficient. Uh, there's also been an emphasis on what we would call crucicentrism, the idea that uh, the, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ uh, for sinners is at the heart of evangelical faith. Uh, we might also say that there is an evangelistic emphasis with an evangelical identity where you're not only to be a Christian, but you are to spread the faith and to actively be trying to share the hope of Christ with others so that they would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and partake in eternal life with him. And then lastly, uh, I think that there would be a consensus that to be evangelical means that there is uh, some degree of social consciousness, meaning that we are to try to bring the totality of the Christian faith to bear on all aspects of our life. And so we don't hermetically seal Christ off just in our hearts, but we're to live in observance of his lordship in how we work and how we think about our obligations to our family um, and how we vote. Uh, so that's kind of the broad theological contours around evangelicalism. Sadly, in our culture today, uh, evangelical has but predominantly become known as a, as a political label uh, that because evangelicals vote in a certain direction, that's what's most unique about them. And I've, I've actually made some, some public criticisms of that methodology because uh, I think it's better to uh, define evangelical by common belief, not necessarily common action. So uh, not all of the authors of the book themselves would be comfortable with the language of evangelical because that can become more sociological than theological in nature. And so there were a few uh, authors of the book who would be high church Anglican mm. or uh, who would be also Orthodox Presbyterian who don't traditionally uh, kind of identify themselves with evangelicalism. And so I... I thought that a Protestant engagement with Evan with Robert B. George would be a much more probably broadly accurate uh, subtitle. And also it speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, Robert P. George is a Catholic intellectual. And what sets the authors of this volume apart is the fact that they are all uh, that they are all Protestants. And so we are we are recognizing uh, that divide. Um, in in Christendom between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, and that is a that is an ongoing divide. It's pronounced, uh, but it has matured in certain ways that allow us to work together uh, amid our differences. And I think that that testifies to 
Robert George's popularity and why this book got written in the first place. Yes, I was. I was going to say. I was going to ask you in just a moment how the book came to be. Came to be gelled. It's a remarkably quick process for a book of such substance. To me, it seemed just a, a year or two. But one of the things you just said too about um, evangelicalism and its emphasis on the the reading of the text of the Bible that Robert P. George has said in his statement. He's he's admonished his own or encouraged his fellow Catholics to follow the evangelical. Uh, uh, example in that he thinks that it, that Catholics sometimes do not read the re, simply read the Bible enough or refer to it. But getting back to the um, the aspect of how the book came together, how did, I know that you have some really fascinating, very touching accounts of your own intellectual development and how you came across his book and meeting him, and you were you were rather shy about about approaching him, and of course he's very approachable, and so he was yeah. very welcoming. But he also you also tell a wonderful story about. You, you had an article published and you got an email that was stern from him, but loving too. I wonder if you could talk about your own personal relationship with him. Yeah, smaller and a young man and a younger man too with this the mentoring aspect of it. Yeah, no, I know. I that's a great question. Um, so I mean, I I, I I'll keep this brief because I could go on for the next hour just on. <laughs> um, so you know, I I first came upon his volume, The Clash of Orthodoxies. Uh, I think in 2007, and hope I, I wish I could tell you that I know how that book came across my desk and where it came from, but I, I can't remember back then. I would have been in college, but I do remember this. I remember reading this volume as, a, as an evangelical kid who was in college, kind of intellectually uh, curious and interested in matters of faith politics, ethics, uh, and culture. And I remember reading this book and just being struck by the power of his arguments, uh, how they aligned with the worldview that I had as a Protestant Christian uh, and as, and admittedly, as a political conservative myself, um, and thinking to myself, wow, I've never really heard arguments of this type made that cohere so clearly with the Christian worldview, but aren't relying on the Bible explicitly mm. as the foundation for those arguments. And so really what I was learning for the first time at age 20 or 21 was I was gaining familiarity with the natural law tradition, which is obviously a, a, a monumentally huge tradition in Christian thought that uh, sadly in the 20th century, Protestantism uh, kind of lost touch with a little bit. But I just remember from 2007 onward uh, being taken by his work and one volume led to another volume led to another volume. Mm. And I just began following his career. And I'll never forget in 2009, a, a profile of him came out in the New York Times mm. called The Conservative Christian Big Thinker. And it was the New York Times, not known as a uh, an outlet for cultural conservatism by any stretch, uh, that proceeded to call Robert P. George uh, the most important living Christian thinker alive today. And I was just taken aback at the grandiosity of that label. I mean, I, I agreed with it based on what I had been reading, but I was like, wow, even the New York Times is recognizing that this this person is extremely important. Uh, as a as a Christian thinker and as a conservative thinker, 
And so fast forward, you know, I, I continue reading uh, what he puts out, his articles. Uh, and then I began to become kind of networked with individuals like Ryan Anderson. Yeah, and, you uh, dedicate the book to Ryan Anderson. I do, I do. He's one of my closest friends and allies, kind of a mentor to me. And so I got to know, uh, eventually I got to know uh, Dr. George through my relationship with Ryan. And uh, I first met Robert George in, I think it would have been December of 2012 at the Heritage Foundation. And so kind of, as you as you alluded to, sheepishly approached him and had several of his books with me for him to sign. And I was, of course, intimidated. But the first thing you learn about Dr. George is he's he's a very down-to-earth, winsome, charismatic, kind person and just indelibly kind. And so, uh, you know, I, I was... I, I had him sign my books and I quickly went away because I didn't want to bother him, but he was just very kind. And then um, from there, I went to go work for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it was through my working at that organization where we had continued interactions with Robert George through some events and had gotten to know him a little bit more uh, because of my relationship with Ryan and other individuals like Sharif Gurgis. And obviously too, when you're my age, and you are socially conservative, uh, to put it mildly, there are not many of us, and we tend to find each other and to network with each other, and um, particularly around the marriage and religious liberty issues is where I would say um, I came first and foremost to kind of know Robert George more as a mentor. But uh, just to kind of maybe close the door on this question, lest I go on longer, <laughs> it, you're right. I wrote an article I want to say maybe in 2015 or 2016, I forget the exact year, where I was kind of uh, stating my views on contraception. And I, I have pretty conservative views on this matter, even by Protestant standards, uh, but I was critiquing what, what I think what is an error in, in some of the Catholic thought around this issue. And I, I actually still hold this conviction, even though I know Professor George would, would thump me in the back of the head for holding it. Um, but I, I wrote this column... And uh, I woke up the next day with, I, I went back and looked at it. I think it was an 800 word email um, where he was responding to what I said. And uh, I remember kind of my heart falling into my stomach <laughs> and just being like, like honestly, I kind of flushed uh, thinking, oh my gosh, what am I reading here? And, you know, he obviously disagreed with me, but he disagreed with me in a way that kind of invited me in on a journey to explore, to think critically, to be self-critical. And uh, I was just struck by the fact that this massively titanic figure would take time out of his day <laughs> to, to write a correcting email to, uh, you know, I guess I'd have been late 20s at that time. I'm not sure how old. And um, I was just struck by that. And so from there, uh, the genesis of the book, just to, to fast forward here, uh, in 2019, I was settling in into a new position at Southern Seminary and looked at a bookshelf in my office and noticed that I had tons of his books on my bookshelf. And just thought to myself, you know, there are several influential living thinkers, but first amongst equals would be Robbie George. And so I emailed him and thought, you know, uh, given your social conservatism, given the fact that he, he was popular at the time already with, with evangelicals, I thought, but you know, here could be an opportunity to do a book that that is a fest shrift, but it is more than a fest shrift as well. It's a little bit 
little bit more critical. And uh, I thought that was that's a very important aspect of the book. It's really it's really a very brave book and brave of you and Robert George both too. Yeah, and brave of the scholars who admire him but say but, and then they yeah uh, yeah no and I, and and I didn't I didn't actually organize the book to be really oriented around a fest trip. It, it it is a, it is a fest trip, but it is more than that because I am I'm genuinely wanting his ideas to percolate in the evangelical mind more than they currently are. And so uh, the, the the interesting thing around this book to, uh, it might be of interest to listeners is usually when you set out to edit a book, finding authors to write in an edited book is often very challenging mm. um, because edited books don't typically sell very well uh, or multi, multi-author volume books don't sell as well. Well, um, I was able to get the author's of this volume signed on and agreeing to write in matter in a matter of a couple of days because there was such eager enthusiasm um, to to engage in a project like this, which I think the eagerness of the contributors speaks to um, the gravity of Professor George, that you had a lot of people who um, who who either knew him or were were intricately familiar with his work who thought, oh gosh, yes, I want to contribute to this because he's he's a monumentally titanic figure. And so it was no difficulty getting people to sign on for this book at all, which was just a, an affirmation of, of, of why I think this book is so important. And, you know, I'll be the first one to admit, this is not going to be a New York Times bestseller. Uh, but I have told other people that I think, you know, I'm 38, still pretty young in my career, I told someone that I, I think that this might be one of the more important projects that I do in my career because the act of translation and the act of retrieval in academic outlets as far as the transmission of ideas, the transmission of traditions, the building back up of traditions is monumentally significant for ideas to um, be transmitted from one generation to the next. And so I am really hopeful that this book might have um, some generational staying power, even if it doesn't have like massive sales numbers. Well, I I I I was very impressed by by the level and and substance of of the authors, and 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 as you say, they're just they span the generations. I looked up various they're they're very ancient age, probably from early thirties to mid sixties or so. Uh, but I was I I wanted to elucidate first to to let listeners know who who the two names that you threw out are uh, Ryan Anderson and Sharif Fergus. I just want to say that both of those were students of Robert George in the I believe in the PhD program at Princeton, and that Fergus is now a professor, young professor, or, you know, or at what level, much assistant or associate professor at Notre Dame, and Ryan Anderson is a leading author of the book, uh, especially on transgender issues, for example. Um, when Harry became Sally, and he was a real pioneer, and he realized the danger of the transgender movement very early on. But the, those two men are examples, and you are examples of, of Robert Robert George's ability to mentor spot as a talent spotter and a developer of of, of abilities. So I think that's that's interesting about about how you. How, about, I'm not surprised that there was a massive alacrity, and that you got emails. Yes, please, I want to contribute. But uh, yeah, and get you mentioned too in your remarks about evangelicalism the social commitment of it. And that's part of the title of the book is The Common Good. I wonder if you could 
talk about what does the phrase come in? But there's also a, a movement in the Catholic Church right now of, of common good mm-hmm. um, theology and, and philosophy yeah. versus basic basic goods or basic, I guess, could you discuss, there's some different terms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, so, um, I mean, and, and to reaffirm your point, the common good-esque language, uh, it's it's predominantly seen more within the Catholic social tradition than it is in the Protestant social ethics tradition. And, uh, and I actually find the rehabilitation of this concept, in addition to my interest in natural law, uh, as as centerpieces of what I'm interested in doing with my own career. Uh, but for for definitional purposes, we might define the common good as the set of conditions uh, or a set of ideals in society that allow both individuals and the institutions of society to reach their due end or reach their proper telos. So the common good assumes that there is an end for which society is organized, and that end is uh, the good. It's it's allowing individuals, families, uh, religious institutions, uh, economic institutions, educational institutions, to do the thing that their institutions are setting out to do. So if you're a family, the common good of the family is for the family to uh, do the thing that families are meant to do, which is to uh, uh, allow everyone to flourish in the confines of the family to bring uh, individuals, children from for the earliest stages of their life into maturity so that they can be fully functioning adults themselves. If it's a, if it's a church, the good of the church is to uh, be an institution that is preaching the gospel and helping people to grow in Christ likeness. Uh, And so that's the end or goal of a church. Uh, When you think of society, um, the, the, the common good of society is more macro level and it's, it's, it's much more aggregative, and it's basically to allow all of these other uh, 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 institutions and individuals at lower levels to do the things that they're designed to do. So this is this is very much indebted to a concept of subsidiarity, uh, the notion that the 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 lower you go down on um, on the totem pole, so to speak, the thicker the goods are held in common because they're more local. And, and the higher you go up on the totem pole, the, the thinner those goods have in common so that my family has our common good, but it, it may look a little bit different than the common good of a family that lives in Manhattan, perhaps, even though we might, we, we might be all wanting to flourish uh, some of what we mean to flourish might look different from one family to the next in some regard. But then over top, you have uh, a, a, an overarching legitimate authority structure that we would call the government, that the government is set up to help solve those problems of coordination between the various organs of society that could come into conflict with each other. But the, the government is there to help uh, 
serve as to, to kind of grease the, the skids, so to speak, to allow all of those various elements of the common good to reach their due end. And so the reason that this matters is um, when we're thinking about this through the grid of, of Christian ethics, which I'm a professor of Christian ethics at Southern Seminary, is I'm trying to communicate to my students that when we think about our obligations to the to society, we should be acting in ways that are not just oriented to a private good uh, or to a good that is partial in nature that privileges one set of people over another set of people, but instead we should be setting up the conditions in society where there are no impediments present that would then allow every single person to reach the end for which they have been made, which is a life of flourishing. I was going to say that in terms of the base, uh, the common good is, is well, you mentioned the, the role of government. And one of the things that Robert George makes the point in his work is that there is, when government can go wrong, government is not infallible. Government can be unjust. And that's when natural law comes in. I wonder, could you discuss, I realize it's a huge topic, but could you explain to listeners who never heard the term what natural law is? Sure. Natural law is, uh, it's, it's a body of thought that some might associate predominantly within the, the Christian tradition and even there within the Catholic tradition, but it's actually a body of thought that uh, is, is trans-historical, trans-geographic. You can locate uh, the natural law tradition uh, basically from time immemorial uh, that basically testifies to the fact that there is uh, an objective universal, intelligible moral order that human beings, by virtue of being human beings, have access to by the power of reason. And that the natural law is something that our natures can grasp because the grasping of those laws are what bring us to our natural end or natural telos as human beings. And so there, again, a, a very large tradition thinking through um, where does this law come from? How exactly is it known? What are the granular details uh, or, or, or um, the particular laws themselves? Uh, and Christianity has thought at length about this. Uh, within the Christian tradition, you can go to uh, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, where Romans chapter 1 speaks of the fact that creation itself testifies to divine design, and that by looking at creation and creation order, that that should point individuals beyond just creation, but should point them to a creator of creation, namely God. And then in a, a passage in Romans chapter 2, there's the famous language of the law that is written on the heart, mm. which the Christian tradition has understood to mean that the Apostle Paul is alluding to the fact that there are there are non-Christians who have a law written on their heart. Uh, now, this isn't a physical law. It's not as though uh, someone has taken a pen to the organ of the heart, but that there is... Uh, there is a, 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 a moral awareness, a moral sense or sensibility that our nature responds to 
because we have been endowed with the power of conscience and the power of conscience helps us to discern right from wrong and that these are primarily cognitive and intellective realities uh, so that if one has reason, one in principle has the ability to grasp at least foundational elements of the natural law. Hmm. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Andrea Walker, editor of the 2023 book, Social, Conservative for, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant Engagement with Robert P. George. And clearly, I should have practiced the word conservatism before I did this that he's a giant of conservatism. But one of the things I was thinking as you were talking about that particular quotation from Paul about the written on the hearts, that that's one of the interesting criticisms of the book of, of one of the contributors is that Robert P. George uses, refers to that, but very little else in scripture specifically, that they, they think that, well, he, he trots out his War Horse favorite quotation, but doesn't do enough. And I thought that was very interesting that, 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 and he, and he, and he makes the point that, well, I'm a philosopher. Again, I'm a philosopher, not a theologian. Could right. you talk about some of the aspects of when he does quote scripture and, and when he does, and when he, when he, do you think that there are times when he should, and that he, there are opportunities? Yeah, yeah. Miss- so, so, yeah. So th- that, I mean, that, that was actually my chapter that, that okay. makes that idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously I say this with all love and regard uh, and respect for Professor George, and I, I would love if he were here. Um, to listen to this, that this would be one of those areas where uh, we don't have a substantive critique. It might be a procedural difference. Mm. Uh, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. I don't have a, a a substantive difference because we're in agreement on the natural law. We have a, a perhaps a procedural disagreement on how the conversation about the natural law should pursue. Um, so, no. To his credit, and I should say, to his credit, really, he is more willing to acknowledge uh, the scriptural foundations for natural law than what I think I detect in some other Catholic intellectuals who are much more reticent to cite scripture. Uh, So he will. uh, He does not cite scripture in great plentitude. Um, and And in his defense, he is a philosopher. He's not a theologian. I believe he does have a degree in theology from Harvard, though. That's true. Uh, so, so obviously, as a Protestant, uh, as a Reformed Protestant, we put the um, we we put a, a pronounced onus on Scripture. And one things that Protestants tend to do is to discuss natural law in the context of not just special revelation that we see in in, Reve- in Romans chapter 2, but in general revelation. And so from a Protestant perspective, natural law is a religious doctrine because God is the author of natural law. Uh, and so, again, I don't have substantive uh, critique of Professor George on this position. I think that if I were to make a request uh, Professor George's variety of natural law is that uh, all of the new natural lawyers of which he would be a part of are predominantly conservative Catholics. And so, you know, sometimes they are a little bit hesitant to acknowledge their metaphysical commitments up front. And so uh, 
I would simply say, you know, we should be more forthcoming and acknowledging that there are metaphysical commitments in discussions around the natural law. And yes, uh, I would agree with him that the natural law is known through reason. Uh, but I would come back and say that the reason that reason exists is because God has made us reasoning beings. And that flows from the fact that we have been made imago dei, and that rationality is one of the chief attributes of being made in God's image. And so, uh, again, I think this is this is one of those areas where you do see Protestants and Catholics approach this a little bit differently, whereas the natural lawyers in his variety are more prone to bring God in uh, at the end of the conversation, I think Protestants like myself would want to bring God uh, in at the very beginning of the conversation and to acknowledge that, yes, while we believe every single human being, religious or not, can partake in or participate in the natural law, the Protestant is more prone to come back and say, yes, but the reason that is so is because it is the non-Christian whose reason exists because of a directive of the eternal law. And the eternal law is synonymous with the uncaused cause who we would call God. And so I don't really think that you have a coherent understanding of the natural law at the end of the day, apart from uh, divine revelation or at least theism as the bedrock backstop of a natural law theory. It's interesting. As a non-evangelical, I would say that you're both right, because he's not specific enough, perhaps for your taste, but to me as a reader, a general lay reader, that the, the divine law is always in the background. It's just an unstated, and then he proceeds from there. He doesn't feel that he has to, to plod his way back right. to that. And, and in his defense, they would never see themselves in operating contra divine law. Uh, or, or or anti-revelation. I think that one of their arguments, and, I, and I'm sympathetic with this argument greatly, in fact, uh, they would say that, well, if the natural law is the natural law, then it's the natural law irrespective of whether someone accepts revelation or not. And so revelation is actually ancillary to the question of whether or not the natural law is coherent on its own grounds. Because th th their argument is, is if the natural law is what it says it is, it is naturally understandable apart from revelation. I agree with that. I would simply say, but the reason anything makes sense at all is because a God exists. Hmm. Yeah, I would say, again, you're both right, because as a, as a reader who's not a, a particularly, I suppose, in a cross way to say non-God oriented, but he does, it is that his, his natural law is very approachable to those who are not, and it, it could lead to people having faith, but it doesn't require yeah. it. That it, it it's it's very it's a it's a very appealing simple. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, that's actually a really good way of saying it. It it, it is not hostile uh, to God. It's, it's, it's all, it, it just doesn't it doesn't require it um, for the overall um, intelligibility of the program that he's that he's arguing for. But he, but but if it's intelligible on its own operation, it's it, Dr. George would still say that God's the foundation of it. 
Well, one of the one of the aspects of the book that I think is fascinating in terms of the cohort, the generational cohort both of you and, and Ryan Anderson and Sharif Gurgis and many of the other younger scholars, is that Robert George grew up in West Virginia in the nineteen fifties and sixties and seventies when, as a young person, it was a very rural Protestant evangelical, probably evangelical background, even though as a Catholic, but he made his good friends. But to you, you grew up in a later age when there began to be a less welcoming uh, environment. Did, what, what is his role in creating a, a situation that, that's a sort of sanctuary for younger intellectuals to, uh, is, that, is that something that he's known for? Because uh, it's a different, yeah, it's a different yeah, yeah. background. That... I think, I think, one of the reasons, um, I, I, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I find such a resonance with his thought, and I think others do because it's easy as a Christian, especially in this culture, to grow up and be told that you're the weird one, mm-hmm. and that you're eccentric, and that your views are on the margins. And I think there's a lot of self doubt in the average evangelical mind where they're thinking to themselves, "Am I crazy?" Am I, am I, am I, am I seeing, am I, am I the wrong one here? Or stupid. You, That's as you feel like, yeah, oh, right. you're stupid. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, you, you come across someone like Robert George's work and you're like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not stupid. Mm. Someone else is seeing this as well. And it could be the fact that, uh, and, and I, and I, I stand by this. I think that there is a degree of intellectual curiosity and courage in his work that you do not see in most others work at all. And, 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 and curiosity and courage are go hand in hand here because he is willing to ask questions and take his mind to places that I feel like the average secular progressive mind refuses to go because the, the, the secular progressive mind has already thrown their arms up and said, no, God cannot be behind this. And Robert George, I think helpfully, pushes us to say, yeah, but but what if he is? So there's a curiosity there. But then secondly, there's a courage behind what he writes. And so if you believe that there is a God, if you believe that that God has revealed himself both in, in special revelation in, in the Bible, but then also in general revelation, in other words, in creation, then, uh, th- then we have some firepower to the strength of our arguments. Uh, you know, and, and I often will say this to my students when I'm teaching, if the natural law is true, then Christians are not the weird ones for believing what they believe around things like life, marriage, uh, and the definition of, of what a man or a woman is. It's actually the secular progressive, I think, that has more to answer for because they have concocted, I think, wholesale or, or uh, yeah out of out of wholesale law that you know that marriage is completely fungible that has no essence or nature to it that human organisms uh really don't have a necessary right to live uh and that maleness and femaleness are just constructs of psychology and gender norms mm. and i find those to be um i i find all of those arguments to be intellectually facile and that's before my Christian critique enters into the equation. I would like to think, I would like to think that if I were not a Christian, I would still be holding the convictions that I do on these issues because I find 
the way that I hold these issues um, to be more intellectually satisfying than what the secular progressive alternative offers. Hmm. As Robert George often makes the point in his public appearances that it's important for conservatives to to know the arguments of progressives better than, yes. as, and oftentimes he does, because he swims in that sea of it, Princeton, the, he's surrounded by it every day. So uh, what, what speaking of it, you talked about his courage and being, a, being a, a Christian in that environment, or even in society at large these days, but one of the quotes in the book I liked was, one of the most important reasons for this book is that it aims to inspire courage. I know a few others, like Robert P. George, who have been willing to withstand ridicule and contempt for their faithfulness to Christ. And that's a very moving quotation. That, uh, but I know we're getting to the end. I promised that I wouldn't take all of your time to, to the day, to, to the day um, because I don't think you're very busy. But one of the things I'd like to ask you is what the traditional final question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I uh, I submitted a book manuscript in March um, to a publisher, B&H Academic, and it's called Faithful Reason, uh, Natural Law, Ethics for God's Glory and Our Good. So it's going to be kind of an evangelical Protestant understanding of natural law. So I have that one that's um, out for peer review, and I'll begin doing some edits on that here in the summer and the fall. And then my wife and I are getting ready to write a book together on helping parents think through challenging cultural questions um, that are confronting Christians. And then Ryan Anderson and I are uh, co-editing a volume with Zondervan. Uh, it's a five views on the natural law that we're currently, all the essays are in. Yeah, so that's that's all the essays are in and we're working on them and doing our initial edits on those right now. And then in August, I have a book coming out with um, a couple of co-editors, Tommy Kidd and Paul Miller, uh, on Baptist political theology and trying to introduce kind of a, uh, a movement for how Baptist thinkers have thought about uh, the relationship between Baptist theology and social order and government. So um, yeah, I've, I've got a lot in the hopper and uh, excited to keep plugging away. Well, I was going to say, apropos of your, your role as a Southern Baptist, I very much encourage listeners to, to Google the interview that you did with Al, Albert Muller and Robert George, and you're sitting in the middle, and it's it's quite it's a, it's a wonderful yeah, it was a, that discussion. Was, that was one of the funnest interviews I've ever done. Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna, I was just going to kid you and say you've just rattled off about five five different projects. Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as of right now, yeah. And you're and you're when, when addition to your teaching and your parenting, but I think that the book about parenting is is very much called for because clearly there are there are difficulties out there for for children. So good for you, and uh, and it's wonderful that you're going to actually edit a book with Ryan Anderson. That must be very exciting yeah. and rewarding. Well, with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Andrew Walker, the editor of the 2023 book, Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant Engagement with Robert P. George. And thank you, Andrew. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.